to episode 64 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today, we are going to do a refresher on queries. Mm-hmm. So this is in advance of the query podcast, uh, query critique podcast, that we are in- still intending to do. I know it's been a long time, um, but keep you know, sending in those queries that you want to have critiqued. Um, just send them to publishingcrawl at gmail.com with the uh, subject query critique. But anyway, so um, I guess we wanted to revisit this topic because I know, Kelly, you went on submission with your first client's manuscript pretty recently, Mm -hmm. and you were talking about sort of the switch between, like, editorial writing work and marking the marketing brain that is sort of required to write queries. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about this briefly before, like what the anatomy of a query was. We can link to those in the show notes, our previous episodes that we've done. Um, so basically, what do you think is the difference between a uh, marketing part of your brain, or like the creative part of your brain that's involved in marketing a work and the creative part of your brain that is involved in crafting the story? Like, what do you think the difference is? I think there are a couple of differences. I think one of the most important ones is um, the distance or lack thereof between the work. So when you're crafting or drafting a work, when you're doing the actual writing, um, that's very intimate. You're close to that. You're creating it, and you're really intimately involved in that process. And when you're pitching something, whether you are pitching to an agent or an agent pitching to an editor or, you know, a movie trailer pitching to an audience, um, you're more removed from the product itself. And you're kind of looking at it holistically and you're trying to impart certain core qualities about that product to your intended audience, whoever they might be. And so... In order to do that, you need to have some distance between yourself and the work, I think. Yeah, I think the distance is, in fact, pretty crucial. Because sometimes, like, when I'm talking with some of my other author friends, you know, we we discuss aspects of our writing, of course, like what makes a good story. But we also talk about things like, you know, author branding and persona and how we... Uh, craft our image and and other things like that in our private discussions. I think having distance is key because there's sometimes a disconnect between what you want the work to be and what the work is. Um, I don't know. I've, I've, always been fairly good I think about kind of switching back and forth between um using the marketing side of my brain and using the sort of like writerly side of my brain so I don't know if you have any particular tips or tricks to get into that switch Kelly because for me I'm just like whatever I whatever (laughs) like I'm fine I did a little bit because um I did recently go out on submission with one of my clients projects And so I had to write a pitch letter and I know some agents that will just send on their author's query letter and just kind of, you know, add some stuff to it and, and, and send that on. Um, and I think sometimes that works and that's fine. I think in this particular case, it wasn't going to be the most effective thing to do. I I felt like I needed to write a new pitch letter. The author's query was fine, um, you know, but in revisions, some core things in the book had changed and I didn't feel like it really accurately reflected the work anymore. And so I said, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write, you know, the submission letter for editors. And once I got that that switch in my brain like fully flipped, it was great. And I knew just what I needed to do and I did it. And I, I think it was pretty effective. Um, but it did, I did like have a few false starts where I, 
was struggling to get into that mindset. And I'm not even the person who wrote the book. So like you would think that intimacy wouldn't be an issue there, but I had spent so much time editing it and reading it closely. And I was kind of like deep in the text at that point. And, um, you know, I think you actually gave me some advice, um, in another conversation that really actually helped me quite a bit when I was writing my pitch letter. And what you said to me was that I needed to kind of distill it down to the essential story that was Mm -hmm. being told. And, you know, like there's only a a very small handful of, of stories. There's boy meets girl. There's, you know, there's these different story tropes that are very bare bones that are archetypal that are replicated over and over and over and over again in fiction. And at the core of every story, no matter how unique it is, there should be, or most likely is, one or two of those essential stories um, at the heart of it. And so you advised me to really just kind of wipe everything else away. What is the very bare bones basic story? And once I connected with that, um, the pitch letter was really easy to write because I knew then all the things that I had to communicate based on that one story. And, um, you know, the, the essential story that this pitch was uh, based off of was, you know, someone bringing down the ruling class. And that, you know, at its barest bones, that's what the story is. And so once I knew that, I knew how to write the story. Uh, I knew how to write the pitch letter, rather, to communicate that story and communicate all the unique things about the way that this book tells that story. Yeah, I think identifying the core, very basic, very archetypal story is pretty key. um, Because I think when people, at least a lot of writers who aren't comfortable making that switch between marketing and and writing often get bogged down in the details of of what they're trying to to sell and that's essentially what a query letter is it's something they there's you're selling it to somebody and so trying to distill something down to a core narrative sort of helps you kind of jettison everything that is unimportant and -hmm. it's not like these are unimportant to your book it's just unimportant when you're trying to pitch or package something to somebody because the simpler the idea is honestly the more commercial and not that things have to be commercial in you know in like the sort of like mass market sells a lot of copies sort of sense but all great commercial works at their core have what again I'm gonna try to sell you know, my boss used to say the handle, that that thing you can just hold on to, easily just pick up and, and carry around. That's that's the the heart of every story. For Winter Song, for example, that's really, in my opinion, that's a coming of age narrative. That is the story of a young woman who is discovering herself through romance and through music. So that's kind of like the core story and then so once you've identified the core story I think then the next thing to do is set up your premise that of course is going to be different from book to book Um, but again the simpler the better because a premise isn't specifics you know like it's weird because we say you know obviously when we critique people's query letters, we're going to say, you know, we need more details or we need this to be more specific. But that's this, it's, it's kind of hard to have details when we have no context. Yeah. The, the specific details that you share are important. You can't just share detail. You need to share the right details. Yeah. The right details. Um, premise is, Premise is basically anything that sets up the stakes, I guess. You know, a, the premise for Winter Song is about a girl who has to rescue her sister from the clutches of the Goblin King. So that's the premise. The core story is a story, it's a coming-of-age narrative where she discovers more about herself. The premise is that she has to rescue her sister from the Goblin King, and in the process of rescuing her sister from the Goblin King, she discovers who she is. That is pretty simplifying. That is absolutely simplifying. 
things that happen in winter song. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but I think it makes it easier for people to wrap their minds around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of specific things in my book that I just didn't mention in my query that I don't think are necessary. The fact that Liesl mm-hmm. has a younger brother, he's a huge part of the narrative, but he's nowhere in my query. Mm-hmm. Except I think it's like a brief mention of like a member of her family and, um, you know, her grandmother's a big deal. There are goblin characters that don't get mentioned. So the simpler and the more archetypal things are, the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think too, the tone is really important in your query and convey, it should convey the tone of your book. You know, if you're writing, a comedy, your query letter should indicate that the book will be humorous, not just because you tell us that you're writing a comedy, but because the writing itself invokes that. Um, you know, in your query, since you were using yours as an example, I remember yours had a sort of a fairy tale feel to it because that was kind of, you know, the thing that you wanted to invoke was this sort of classic, um, you know, story of a maiden going into the forest and, you know, um, so that I think is important too. So you need, you know, the core narrative, the core story, you need your unique premise, you need to convey the tone of your book through your query as well. And I would say those are all three really crucial things that you need to have in queries. Um, and, and yeah, the details, I'm trying to think of how to sort out like what details are the right details because, you know, I've helped people write query letters and I've read so many query letters and, and when something's extraneous, I know, or within a few questions, I know, um, that, that this doesn't really need to be there. And I guess there's no way to focus on what doesn't need to be there. You should just focus on what does. You need to tell us the protagonist. You need to tell us what their goal is. You need to tell us what's standing in the way of that goal. And you need to tell us how they plan to overcome that goal. And that's, you know, all we need. We don't need to know how they do it. We don't need to know how it ends. We don't need to know if they win or not. Um, you know, but we need those, those core things. And if those things aren't there, uh, things are going to start to break down. Yeah. I think the specific details, like Kelly said, are the protagonist there. It's really the stakes the details need to give us what the stakes are in this book because what the stakes give us are reasons to care. <laughs> um, and I think this is something that I uh, I see for a lot of beginning writers or a lot of novice writers, they don't know how to identify the stakes. I think subconsciously they know what they are, they just don't know how to identify what the stakes are. And how to identify what the stakes are is really the question of what the protagonist has to lose by the events, of, by what happens in the story. Like, um, or, it, and it's not like necessarily a physical sense of loss. It's just like emotional stakes. Like, what will they lose if they don't get what they want? What will they lose if they mm-hmm. don't, if this doesn't happen? And you don't have to spell it out in that way. You don't have to be like, my protagonist will lose blank. You know, you don't have to say it that way. But I think your copy needs to reflect what the stakes are. And that's really the most important thing for me mm-hmm. is I just need to know why I should care. You know, like if, if everything seems hunky-dory and then I won't care or... If a lot of stuff is happening, but I don't have a sense of who the characters are, then I don't care. So there needs to be a balance of of what's going on, you know, the plot, quote-unquote, of this book, and who the characters are, because that together gives me what the stakes of the book are. You know, I think... And and other things, like, we've mentioned, I think, in our previous Anatomy of Aquaria podcast, that we don't actually need to know the ending of a book. Mm Mm-mm. But we probably should have an idea of how it's going to end. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, I think a lot of that, too, can be communicated in genre. Like, if you're writing a mystery, the query should, you know, tell us, like, what is the essential 
mystery going to be about? What are they trying to figure out? Why, you know, is it a murder mystery? Has something been stolen that they're trying to locate? Like what it, you know, your query should, should, your genre should be reflected in your query. And usually those genre clues will, you know, give us a good idea of where things are going so that we have the right expectations because, there have been times when I've read a query letter and it's been great and I've requested material and then the book that I get is not what I was set up to expect based on the query letter. <laughs> and this is hard too because um, if you think about... So let's think about movie trailers because they usually do several for each movie. There will be different types of movie trailers geared toward different audiences, right? You mm -hmm. know, there'll be like the really action-y trailer and the really emotional trailer. And there'll be, you know, trailers aimed at women and trailers aimed at, you know, other audiences. There's just, you can recut the same material to present different angles of it, couple it with certain music and highlight certain scenes. And you get a completely different feeling based on that movie trailer. And you could conceivably do the same thing with books. Um, you know, you could highlight different aspects of your book and, you know, have it appear to be one way or another. Um, you know, because like JJ said, there's lots of things about your book that aren't going to make it into your query. And so there's no way that your query can communicate everything about the book. But the query should establish a good faith expectation of what your book is largely going to be about and what it's largely going to, the feelings that it's going to evoke. You know, if it's a dark comedy, you would write that query differently than if it was just a straight up humorous novel. Um, you know, if it's a tragic romance, you'd write that differently than a romantic comedy. Like, you would you would set your expectations appropriately rather than just focus on well it's a romance and then not let me know is it a comedic romance or a dark romance like what what is it um i think it's important to set your expectations clearly because if an agent does request the material and then they get the book and it's nothing at all like the query led them to anticipate or expect um that's hard too yeah <laughs> To use the movie example again, actually, um, I think a trailer comparison is actually a pretty good one. Um, but look at the movie Suicide Squad, which the trailers, anyway, led me to believe that it would be this, like, kind of fun, slightly anarchic romp with a whole bunch of DC Universe villains, and it had a, you know, fun, punchy trailer soundtrack, and that is not what that movie is at all. Actually, the movie is a tonal mess, but, like, the trailer made it seem like it was something, and then when the actual movie came out, it was, like, something entirely different. Um, but, like, a really good trailer will get at the genre, will get at the stakes, will get at the premise, and will do it pretty quickly. You know? So I think maybe if you study really good trailers, like, so maybe, say you have a movie that you want to use as a comp to your book, maybe look for the trailer, you know, maybe look the trailer up and see what scenes made it into the trailer, how they arranged the trailer, what narrative that trailer is trying to sell you, because that's essentially a query for the movie. Um, one of my favorite tr movie trailers of all time, actually, is, um, the trailer for the two towers. This is old. Um, this because I was because I realized the other day how old the Lord of the Rings movies are, which made me feel really old. Um, but the the trailer for the two towers, which I think does so many things really well, it reintroduces you to the characters that you already met in the Fellowship, but you it also sets up very quickly what the stakes are for each one, <laughs> and. Um, you know, what they have, you know, what the new obstacles that each, because now the fellowship is broken up, so, like, what each, what new obstacle each group has to overcome, you know, the new surprises and twists and turns that they may come up against. I think, actually, it is one of the best trailers I've, I remember seeing for a movie. So, you know, so I think that's not a bad idea. Find, so, find, pick a movie that you like, and just Google the trailer on YouTube or whatever, and then study that trailer. And do you think if if 
do you think it's a good reflection of the movie? If you think it is a good reflection of the movie, then di try to dissect why. Like, why you think it's a good selling, you know, tool for the movie. Or if you think it's a bad trailer, like Suicide Squads, maybe also figure out or pinpoint why. You know, why it, it's not working. Um, because I think we've also seen trailers for movies, or at least I know I have, where I've, watched, I've been in a movie theater and I'm watching the previews and the trailers say nothing. Literally nothing. It just, like, shows me a bunch of images. And I'm like, okay, but why? <laughs> like, if I, if I finish watching a trailer and I'm like, well, I don't have any interest in watching this movie, not because it's not a genre that I watch or whatever, it's just why, basically. Here, I, I will say this, like, so... I think last week we I mentioned that I went to go see Wonder Woman and there and of course like there was a whole bunch of trailers before Wonder Woman, including one for the upcoming Justice League movie. And I have no idea what that movie is about. I have no idea what the stakes are. I only know that different members of the Justice League come together, but I don't know why. I don't know what they're up against. There's like some scenes of them fighting fighting enemies that I don't know anything about. So they're just some scenes where they're kind of posing and looking badass. And there's, like, maybe some light banter, but I don't care about the banter because I don't know who any of these characters are. Like, I know who they are because I know the Justice League, but it's right. like, I don't, you know, you know, this is the There's DC no context, universe. yeah. So, I, I mean, I'll probably watch it because Robin Wright is in the Justice League movie, but she's, like, the only reason I'd go see it anyway. But, like, this is what I mean by, like, there are trailers like that that just kind of give me things that they think are cool and that's enough to get me to watch it, but it's not. And it's the same thing with a query. If you give us a whole bunch of names and places but no context, then why do we care? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the little catchphrase I've kind of been thinking over and over in my head as I read queries these days is that you need to tell me the story and sell me on it. Those are the things I want you to do. Telling and selling, that's it. And the telling is, you know, your premise and that archetypal core story. And the selling is, you know, the tone and the unique specific details and stakes um, present in your book that, you know, aren't present in anyone else's book. And aside from that, I really don't care. Um, one thing that I really hate that really needs to stop in queries is this, this book report format is kind mm -hmm. of like how I've started thinking about it, mm -hmm. where um, people will start telling me the, the virtues of their book and the qualities that their book has and the themes that it explores and the ways that this will impact their intended audience. And I don't care about any of that stuff mm -hmm. at all. I don't care, um, you know, what you think the thematic resonance of your book is. I don't care. I mean, I care, like, in a larger sense. Like, yes, of course, if we work together, I care deeply about those things. But I don't care about them at the querying stage. Um, the most important thing at the querying stage is the story. You have to give me the story. And you know, how you think it's going to impact your audience, how you, you know, think this is going to revolutionize the publishing world, how you think, you know, this, this book is where it's going to fit in the larger world and, and the emotional impact that it's going to have, um, are not relevant. A lot of times, you know, even the people who are trying to just be, um, really genuine, it, it sometimes comes off as really grandiose and out of touch. And like, people don't really understand the publishing business or the market or, um, you know, it just, there's just like some kind of a disconnect that kind of flags you as an amateur and, and not understanding the purpose of the query, which is, you know, to secure representation after you have representation, of course, things like thinking about your, your market and your intended audience are important. Of course, you're going to want to do things like make sure, you know, the themes in your book resonate and are carried through the entire narrative. Like, of course, all those things will be important, but, um, that's all much further down the line. And 
that's not what an agent is looking for. I don't look for somebody, you know, who, who is gonna, you know, I'm trying to like not use real examples and just make up examples in the spot. And of course, all I'm thinking of is real examples, which I'm not going to use. Um, you know, but, but I don't open my query box thinking like, yes, I want the next, you know, great tragic love story that is going to knock every other love story out of the park and will be the most amazing thing and will be taught in classrooms for years to come. And, you know, I don't even know whatever it is that people say. Um, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking to be entertained. I'm looking for something that um, I can't stop reading that when I get, when I scroll to the end of your email and your sample chapter has run out, that I need to request more because I need to know what happens next. I don't need to know what the great larger theme is. I need to know what happens next. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think the thing, the problem with saying this book will revolutionize the business or this book has contains X theme that will resonate with this audience is that you haven't proved it. <laughs> you know, it's like, again, if we go back to the movie trailer thing, if the, if the trailer is trying to sell you on this movie by telling you this is an important work of filmmaking and you're kind of like, okay, why? <laughs> Who cares? There is CGI that has never been done before in this movie. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, okay. I mean, those are cool things to talk about once the movie has come out, you know? Yeah, like, and analyze those things, like, great. Yeah, but and, and understand the impact of the images or the film or whatever. Those are all interesting things to talk about after it's essentially proved itself. Because, you know, or, like, it's, it, you know, it's, it's also, like, anytime somebody is trying to explain what the intent of their work is, who's going to do that when you're not there? You know, mm -hmm. it, you, the work has to stand on its own. So despite what you want it to do, if it doesn't actually do what you want it to do, then you're not, you, basically you're, you're selling something that doesn't exist, more or less. Um, so it's like, so I, the whole book report thing is, okay, like we understand your good intentions, but intentions don't mean anything if you can't prove it. Yeah, that's that's all, and it's 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 also like you can't like you can't go around and explain and footnote at absolutely every decision that you've made. Like, well, you're reading it wrong because you can't tell people that they're interpreting your text wrong. The whole mm -hmm. author is dead idea again, and in many cases, like the works that we read, the author is dead. So we're gonna have to in interpret the words or you know read the meaning or whatever or take what we take away from the book what you can the only thing an author can really do is try and write something clearly so if they have an idea or an intent they're going to have to prove it with the writing and not tell you after the fact that this is what they were trying to do so, yeah, express, you know, express those ideas clearly in a way that, you know, is properly communicated. Because, yeah, you cannot sit over the shoulder of every reader and and correct them or inform them or guide them as they read your book. It just can't be done. And, uh, and you know, you might as well start letting go of that at the querying stage because you're going to have to let go of it sometime. Um, so, yeah, queries, I think... Um, are hard to write. I think, you know, we've talked about them a couple of times here. There's so many blog posts and other, you know, resources, both on pub crawl and from other agents and industry professionals on how to write good queries. Um, you know, there's tons of, you know, you can go to query tracker, I think has whole forums where, you know, people will kind of, um, critique one another's work and, um, you know, you can post your query there and get feedback and help. And, you know, uh, whether you choose to do something like that or you workshop it yourself or you just write the perfect pitch on the first try and <laughs> sent it out. I mean, um, I workshopped my pitch letter. I had some agent friends that I sent it to where I was like, Hey, you know, that I'm writing my pitch letter for the first time. Could you take a look at this? And they had some great feedback for me that I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, 
you know, noticed one friend of mine said, hey, you mentioned up here that it's a historical, but there's literally nothing in the entire query that tells me what period it is. And I was like, oh, that's good to know. Like, you know, so it, it's not that we're saying that this is all really obvious stuff that you should just automatically be good at. It, it's hard work and, you know, it's going to take a couple tries and you're going to have to work at it. But I think knowing what you need to be successful is a good place to start. And I think a lot of authors just might not know, or, or, or at least if they don't, if they do know, they don't know how to make that happen. They don't know how to execute it, I think. Yeah, it is really more of a way of looking at things, and it is, I think, a, a sort of a, a gear shift that I don't think a lot of writers are practiced at, um, which is fine. It's a, it's a skill that you you work at like anything else, you know, so it's not like everyone's naturally gifted at this sort of thing. I also think that it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, we've stressed mm -hmm. this before, like... It, your query does not have to be perfect. All no. it has to do is get someone's attention and to get them wanting to read more. That mm -hmm. is it. The only thing a query should do, regardless of how it's structured or regardless of this or regardless of that, is that it just gets whoever's reading it to want to read more. That's all. Mm -hmm. So don't stress too much about, oh, you know, these are all these rules that I have to follow. Well, you know... If it gets the job done, it gets the job done, so don't overstress. There is one point I want to kind of return to, which is, you know, you and I mentioned that trying to find the archetypal story is really the most important part of writing a query, and what is an archetype? Hmm. <laughs> way, way back when J.J., like emailed me and was like, we should start a podcast. We recorded like a, we recorded like a test episode that has never aired. And I don't even think we have it anywhere. I certainly don't have my files anymore. I do. You do? do. Yeah. <laughs> we recorded like a test episode to like kind of feel out like, how would this work? Can we really sustain a conversation this long? Yes. The answer is yes, we can. <laughs> um, and to also share with our fellow colleagues at Pubcrawl to say, you know, we're doing this under this umbrella. Is this kind of content, you know, cool with you guys? So we put together this little conversation where we essentially just started talking and, and recorded ourselves. And it was about archetypes because JJ mm -hmm. and I love archetypes. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like archetypes are one of those things that if I try to define it for you, I will start rambling for like seven or eight minutes and not really ever fully articulate what I'm trying to say. And JJ will have something really pithy and succinct that she'll say. And I'll be like, well, you should have gone first. So <laughs> I'm going to tell you that you should be the one to illuminate us all as to what archetypes are. Yeah, I actually have thought about this because there are archetypes, there are tropes, and then there are stereotypes. And... They are related, I think. You know, archetypes and, and all of those things are related. I think tropes are building blocks for a lot of archetypal narratives. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, an archetype sort of comes down to just like the er whatever it is. Like the, the absolute first of its kind type of thing. Um, and... Archet and Kelly and I love archetypes because we'll like assign archetypes to people we know, to you know shows we watch, to books that we read, and we. Um, so, this is something that we like to do, that I like to do with my friends, that we sort of like to play. And honestly, I find playing the archetype game, which is what I call it, really useful, even when it comes down to identifying yourself and your place in the market as. A public figure or as an author or what have you I think identifying archetypes can be really useful so the archetype is is boiling everything down to the simplest thing possible well still making it unique which is I know really really hard and vague and really like not ex exactly very helpful for a lot of people but you know so sometimes we talk about things like the girl next door or boy meets girl or a stranger comes to town or like these are all sort of archetypal narratives mm -hmm. that the, br 
beautiful brooding boy. Mm-hmm. And I think for story, archetypal stories, I think, I forgot, I thought it was like Stephen King or someone who said there's like only seven stories or something in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily strictly true, but if, you know, like if you were to discover what an archetype is, or if you were to, like, for example, the coming-of-age narrative. The coming-of-age narrative can be applied to, like, pretty much everything, if you really think about it. Um, so, just kind of, I think it takes work to sort of pinpoint archetypes and to put a name to them. And it's easy to practice, I think, once you've studied TV tropes. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about TV tropes here before. We have indeed talked about TV tropes. And I don't always agree with actually some of the categorization of TV tropes. Um, because they get really specific. And um, and I, I think an archetype is the the broader the better. Mm, and yeah, TV tropes the Earth get very mother. specific. Yeah. yeah, they have like 18 variations of the girl next door, you know, yes. that with like different offshoots and different, you know, girl next door can morph into a blah, 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 you know. Right. TV tropes is wonderful. It is a huge time suck. Just block off like three days of your life mm-hmm. and make sure you've got food and water nearby. And uh, yeah, but they're hyper, hyper specific. Yeah, and archetypes are not specific. Well, you think about, like, they're cross-cultural even. Like, you know, you think Mm -hmm. about, like, um, you know, like, different um, archetypal gods. You know, there's usually similar, you know, not exactly identical, but similar stories. You know, there there is usually a god of death or the underworld or, you know, the, the peaceful realms or, you know, whatever you would call it. There's that kind of a figure, the gatekeeper between this life and the next, you know, that's an archetype. Um, the specifics may change, but that is, you know, a, a simple archetype that is recognizable. You know, that person, you know, that figure, um, when you see them and you can understand immediately certain things about them based on that archetype. Yeah. Or something like beauty and the beast is definitely mm-hmm. an archetype because a lot of fairy tales obviously are, you know, beauty and the beast as a story can be applied to lots of different stories across different cultures. You could even say something like Hades and Persephone is a Beauty and the Beast type story. Mm-hmm. You could say, um, like, A Thousand and One Nights is a Beauty and the Beast type story. You know, so it's, or Cinderella, again, that's an archetypal story. It's about um, somebody who endures a lot of adversity and is therefore rewarded at the end by enduring, you know, and Beauty and the Beast is a story that is about somebody who learns to see past the the horrible circumstances that they are in, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. it, so there's a lot of commonalities between archetypal stories. Um, so if you think of a kind of a general story and you can sort of find different things that could fit into that umbrella, you've probably stumbled upon an archetype. Um, there, for, particularly for fairy tales, you can actually, there's actually like a categorization system for fairy tales. And I think it's called the Arn Thompson system. And so you can actually look them up. Like, you know, Snow White is an, is an example of this type of story or, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can sort of see the kind of commonalities, um, the kind, you know, there's, the story of the chosen one, that's obviously an archetypal story, but the, Mm -hmm. the chosen one can also apply to things like the story of Jesus, like as a chosen one narrative. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, again, it's, it's sort of hard to describe particularly (laughs) where it differs from stereotype. Yeah. So what you're saying is we should do a podcast series on archetypes, stereotypes, and tropes. It's, we can try. It's what we're saying. We can try. We can definitely try. Yeah. Maybe further down the line, we'll definitely do that. Um, <laughs> and it is a hard line to walk because some people will find archetypal stories stereotypical. You know, that mm-hmm. is just the way it is. Um but yeah, it's it is something that I think you can read up on because it, yeah. ultimately what an archetype is is shorthand. Mm-hmm. If well, you identify like, the archetype, you don't have to specifically give every single detail. 
Yeah. Well, this is like how I was so mad that Harry dies and you were like, of course he dies. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that is the story that Harry Potter is telling. He, he's the chosen one. He's the Jesus figure. He's, you know, of course he's going to die. Buffy's a chosen one. Chosen one. Buffy dies. Like the chosen one dies at some point. That's the story. That's what happens. Um, but I was very mad about Harry. <laughs> Yeah, the funny thing about Harry is that I could see all of this coming and I was still mad about it. <laughs> well, it, the way that she executed it was dumb. Let's put it that way. I'm not necessarily mad that he died so much as I'm mad that he was a freaking horcrux. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, still bitter. Still bitter. <laughs> Never over it. Um, anyway, we're like so far <laughs> off topic. But queries, you guys, are great. I love reading them from you. I'm excited to do this um, next query critique. We always have so much fun with that. So mm -hmm. definitely send us your queries. Um, we will be honest, but, but gentle. <laughs> well, Kelly will be gentle. I'm always That's bad. What I'm cop. here for. <laughs> I'm An always archetype. bad. Cop. Good, good cop, bad cop. <laughs> exactly. Another archetype, you know, and the other thing is archetypes often work off of others like in contrast to other things. We should we should actually have an entire podcast we episode. So we'll we'll save all of our thoughts about this for another time. Anyway, any final thoughts and comments about queries that we want to tell the audience? Um do your research. Um get some feedback. Get as much distance as you can. Mm -hmm. And uh yeah. Alright. Awesome. So, what are we working on? What am I working on professionally? I just wrapped up edits for my third client's manuscript. And so, right now, I, like, have no client work pending. Um, once my... I have two clients who are editing, and once they're done, I'll be out on submissions again. And I've got a book out on submission that just needs to kind of be maintained right now. But now I'm very much back to trying to catch up on queries and requested materials, because I have some very old manuscripts that have been sitting, and I've been keeping people waiting. And so I'm trying to get through those. And that's pretty much what I'm working on professionally. I don't know if I'm working on anything unprofessionally <laughs> in life. <laughs> kind of. My husband and I challenged each other to a fitness challenge, and I'm supposed to be able to sustain a five-minute plank by our anniversary on September 1st, so that's Holy what I'm working moly. on personally. Yeah, it was a really dumb idea, but... <laughs> I mean, like, even just, like, two minutes, I'm already, like, <laughs> like my yeah. arms are shaking, yeah. and it's terrible. So I, I did my first. So I am I am um, not at my peak fitness at the moment. <laughs> we'll say it We'll say it that way. Um, and so I did, like, an initial plank when we made this. My husband is going to do five pull-ups. He can't even do one right now, and his goal is five pull-ups. And they're stretch goals. We, we deliberately made them difficult um, to kind of motivate ourselves. So he's going to do five pull-ups. I'm going to do a five-minute plank. Um, but I did a plank on the first day just to kind of like test like my starting point 12 seconds <laughs> it used to be much better when I was doing yoga and stuff frequently but I have kind of taken some time off of exercise and so yeah a 12 second plank is my starting point so you guys should ask me around September and see if I've if I've met my goal <laughs> got a long way to go <laughs> But I have a training program. I have a plan that I, you know, work on every day and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. stuff. So I, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> what are you working on? Um, still writing book two. I am also working on a secret project that I can't say anything about right now. I know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's fun. It's, it, it is a lot of fun. And I think extremely needed because I'll be completely honest sometimes I get really sick of the characters in Winter Song <laughs> um, and it's not that I don't love them because I do love them a lot but you've spent a lot of time with them over the I past have. couple years when did you write Winter Song? 2015 uh, or 14? no end of 2013 2013. Yeah, so you've been working on this for a long time. I have. I mean, obviously there were long stretches of time where I wasn't working on it, but I think 
just thinking about this world and and everything it's for me it's kind of exhausting particularly because I think Liesl is exhausting as character <laughs> like I said I love her she is just exhausting um so this has been fun to work on and it's kind of been a palette cleanser the only hint I think I will give is that um I want, I, it's making me feel the way I did when I watched Sailor Moon for the first time when I was 12. Talk about archetypes, because that's another show with a lot of, like, archetypal characters and figures in it. Um, so yeah, that's, that is currently what I'm working on writing-wise, as well as writing book two. Um, I'm enjoying, obviously, I mentioned last week that I um, am a full-time writer now. But more than that, this summer is actually pretty quiet for me in terms of events and travel. So I'm enjoying that as well, that time yeah. to be home and not kind of constantly be on the road or, you know, kind of performing for people. Because I'll be completely honest, I think events, I don't mind doing events at all. In fact, I'm actually pretty comfortable with public speaking and I'm comfortable with performing, but I... As an introvert, it's very exhausting. So, um, but maybe further down, that's another thing we can talk about, are just events, you know, like once you become a published author, like how to handle events, tips and tricks and stuff like that. So we can definitely talk about it. But this summer is pretty quiet on the travel front, so I am absolutely reveling in that while I can. <laughs> so have you been reading anything no, not in the last week. I'm on the, I've actually maxed out my holds on, at my library, which I didn't know I could do. I can check out, I can check out like 30 books at once. They'll let me have all those um, books out at the same time, but I can't hold more than 15 at once. That's still I more don't, than me. I can't hold more than five. I don't know why, why would they restrict you on what books you can hold? I don't understand. Um, and so my, my library too also does this really great thing where they let you know, um, what's been pre-ordered. So you can put holds on pre-orders at my library, which couldn't at my old library. Um, so I've got a ton of books that aren't even published yet that I'm waiting for. And I'm so excited. Like Warcross by Marie Lou is one of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, what's the new Cindy Pond want? Something oh, that w? just came out. Yeah, one. Did it just come out? Okay, so that must have... Now I'm still on hold for it. It hasn't come through for me, but it must be out uh, in the world now. So yeah, so I'm so excited about all these books, but I haven't actually read any of them because they're still on hold. And I haven't been to the bookstore in a while, but I am, um, hopefully, knock on wood, it's not 100% in stone yet, but I think I'm going to see Roxane Gay tomorrow. Ooh! Yeah, she is speaking at the bookstore right up the street from my house, Majors and Quinn, which is a great uh, bookstore in Minneapolis if you're local. And she's going to be speaking there, and I am going to go there, um, hopefully, if childcare stuff works out, to see her speak. And uh, I think I might pick up <laughs> a couple dozen books while I'm there. Uh, so we'll see. What about you? Have you read anything? Nothing new. I am actually in the process of rereading the Atolia books by Megan Whalen Turner. Mm. So the first one being The Thief. Uh, the second is The Queen of Atolia. The third is The King of Atolia. Um, the fourth is A Conspiracy of Kings. And the most recent actually came out like a month or so ago. And, and I bought it. I just hadn't had time to get around to it. So I'm actually rereading the Atolia series before I get to Thickest Thieves, which is the fifth book. And it's actually really funny because... So uh, I was out uh, in L.A. for Y'all West, and I was there with Roshni, Chokshi, and the two of us decided that we were going to get a manicure and pedicure while we were there because my... Well, my nails are trash. So I didn't want to basically, like, you know, go to and have a signing and see people and just look like a hot mess. Um, so we went to get our nails done... And we were at this cute little, like, mani-pedi place in Santa Monica, and um, Jane Putch, who is a literary agent, comes in, and, you know, she says hi, and we recognize her, and she's like, oh, by the way, this is Megan Whalen Turner. <laughs> and she and I lost our minds. <laughs> like, that sort of, like, celeb freak-out moment, uh, which... 
honestly, I, it doesn't often happen to me because I did grow up in Los Angeles, so I did see a lot of celebrities and at least like the philosophy growing up for me, my parents are always like, look, you know, I know that they're famous, but they're, they're being private civilians right now. So just treat them like you would any other stranger, which was kind of always my philosophy. But like, seriously though, she came in and we're like, oh my God, it's Megan <laughs> And like, we were like, like having a complete and utter, utter freak out. Um, and she was really nice and super gracious and like just really, really awesome. Um, but that did, you know, and obviously I, I bought the most recent Thickest Thieves books. I just hadn't had time to get around to it. But I really, really like them. So if you guys have not read them, they're they're fun. They're kind of like ancient Greek-inspired high fantasy. And she does plotting, like political plotting and intrigue really, really, really well. And I really love the character of Eugenides. So, um... Yeah, so that's pretty much it, and I don't think I've, I don't think I'm reading anything else. I am, because I'm writing book two and working on a secret project, I don't necessarily have a lot of time to be reading, um, and when I go to the gym, I'm either watching the news, which is basically, I don't have cable at home, so I don't, you know, I don't have TV to watch at home, so often I, like, will deliberately time going to the gym so I can, like, catch, you know, like, I, I was at the gym. I was, like, made sure I was at the gym for Jim Comey's hearing. I made sure I was at the gym for, you know, Sessions hearing. So it's, like, all that kind of stuff. And that's that's pretty much it. I, um, have you been, any other off, any off-menu recommendations? Do you have any? Yes, I do. Um, so the first one is what I'm drinking. <laughs> Um, so if you've heard ice clinking or any slurping sounds or anything, that's me. Um, it is not booze contrary to our little intro that says we're going to talk about booze sometimes and then we never do. Um, (laughs) we used to drink a lot more when we podcasted, Mm. um, but we're old now and we'd fall asleep, I think, or at least I would. So this is non-alcoholic, but this is kind of the, the thing that I've been doing this summer that I'm really into. It's club soda. Um, with fruit and a simple syrup over ice. And I make the simple syrup with herbs. So I've done one with mint, and this one that I have right in front of me is basil. Um, So the one I'm drinking right now is basil and strawberry. I did um, mint and raspberries before. I did mint, lime, and cucumber. So you can do all these different concoctions. But essentially, a simple syrup is equal parts water and sugar. You heat it until it just comes to a boil. You take it off the heat. You add whatever infusion you want to flavor it with. So you could do citrus peels or herbs herbs or whatever, let it sit until it fully cools, strain it, and then it's a sweet flavored syrup that you can pour into stuff. And I've been pouring it over club soda and throwing some fruit in there, and it's awesome. (laughs) I highly recommend. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen far too many photos of these types of drinks. Yeah, I have doing a lot of cold brewing this this summer. Mm -hmm. Me too. Um, I... Well, like, one, because I can't keep spending money at Dunkin' Donuts on iced coffee. No. Um, and also because you, if you brew coffee and then chill it, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just gross. So cold brewing, um, what I have is I have, like, a 64-ounce, or I have a 64-ounce, like, mason jar mm-hmm. that I just put coffee grounds into and fill it up with water and let it sit for, like, 12 hours. Then I just strain it. So I, you know, I have a strainer and I put a coffee filter in the strainer and then I pour mm-hmm. the brew, cold brew basically into it. And then I just have iced coffee. Also, mm-hmm. what I have been doing is I've been also freezing the, the iced ice coffee, the ice mm-hmm. cubes. So instead That's of what like I do too. ending up with watery coffee, I have just coffee, which is great. Mm-hmm. And the other problem is though, so cold brew is actually much higher in caffeine. You're supposed to dilute it. Yeah. yeah. And I did not know that like the first week I was doing it and I had like <laughs> two glasses of, of cold brew. I was like, this is like bouncing off of walls. It was terrible. Oh, yeah. I was like, Oh no, this is bad. This is very bad. Um, yeah. So yeah, so dilute your iced coffee. Dilute your cold brew for sure. I make cold brew so often in the summer that for Mother's Day this year, David got me a cold brew 
apparatus. I don't want to say machine because there's nothing mechanical about it, but it's like a big tank with a huge speci like specific filter and you put the coffee in, you pour the cold water in and then it's got a tap. And so I literally have cold brew on tap at my house. Oh, that's now. nice. It's so fancy. I feel like a very fancy lady when I drink it now. But, uh, but yeah, that was my Mother's Day present. I used to just use a French press. You can use a mason jar like JJ does. It's so easy, and it, it honestly really does taste so much better because I think that, uh, well, nowadays I think a lot of coffee shops have caught on and actually do serve cold cold brew, but I've still been to places where it's just old hot coffee Yeah, that, that they just give you, and it's acrid and horrible and bitter, and so it tastes so good when it's at home and it's cheap. And I've been a little bit indulgent and have been buying some half and half. <laughs> Just throw that in there in the morning and, oh, it's wonderful. I actually uh, put cashew milk in mine. Nice. I haven't tried that. I, I hadn't either. I, I no actually normally put almond milk in mine um, because I, this is probably, probably, you know, we don't drink very much because we're old now. And also because I'm old now, dairy doesn't really agree with me very much anymore. Um, so I've been drinking almond milk, but a friend of mine just was like, oh yeah, I've been putting cashew milk in my iced coffee. And I was like, I have not heard of this. And, um, I think Whole Foods sells it. It's actually quite good. You know, I don't even put any sweetener in my iced coffee with the cashew milk because it's just like creamy enough to kind of just like mm -hmm. give it that. Um, because, or, you know, I, I do make simple syrup as well. I don't infuse mine with any herbs, although I probably could. Um, but yeah, it, 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 these are things that I like that I have time to do now because mm -hmm. like, previously I had no time to do any of this. Um, so I, I, I'm enjoying spending more time in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. The other off menu recommendation I have comes with a lot of caveats. <laughs> so, um, the Tonys were just on. Oh, yes. And I watched them in bits and pieces because um, David was watching some of the hockey game um, and I was watching the Tonys and I didn't have an emotional investment in the Tonys this year because I'm a really bad theater kid and I had not really paid attention to any of the shows, unfortunately. I, I, I mean, I cannot overstate how much of a theater kid I was in my adolescence. And normally, you know, even now years later, um, I'm at least up on all that stuff. I've heard the music, I have the soundtracks, you know, and, and this year I just did not, I hadn't heard any of the new musicals. I wasn't even really aware of what was going on or even who was nominated. Mm, so too. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mind sharing the TV that night. Um, but I did tell my husband, we need to make sure that we are watching the Tonys when dear Evan Hansen does their musical number. My caveats are as follows. One, I have not seen this show. Two, I have not listened to the full soundtrack. I've only seen this one performance of this one song. Um, based on things that I have read, there are some problematic things about the musical and the ways that it glorifies problematic behaviors and people. Um, I think those things are worth reading. I have taken away a lot of um, important insights from them and when I do listen to the full soundtrack I will keep those things in mind um, I think those criticisms are valid and important that the show explores some problematic territory and that um, you know there's different interpretations of it some people argue that the show does handle the subject matter well and other people argue that it does not uh, but just putting it out there that there are some controversies about this show and you should educate yourself about them that being said, um, Ben Platt plays the title character, and he won for uh, Best Actor uh, in a Musical. And regardless of the larger issues with the show itself and the larger issues with the character that Ben Platt plays, um, by all accounts, his performance in this show is astounding. And if you have not seen him do his, um, I think it's the big song in the show, his main solo, uh, Waving Through a Window is what it's called. And he performed it on the Tonys and it's all over YouTube and it's, you know, you can very easily find it. Google, you know, Ben Platt Tonys. Um, it's an astonishing performance. 
And, um, I mean, it's really just vocally incredible. And I read all these interviews with him about the things that he studied in order to achieve this character. He plays a socially anxious high school kid. And he incorporated a lot of the physicality um, of his character into his training. And so he has a physical therapist and a voice coach who worked together with him for this in preparation for this role and um, to help avoid vocal damage and, you know, correct his posture because he plays a character very sort of hunched and awkward physically. And some of the physical therapy techniques um, that he learned in order to help his body recover, he's actually incorporated into his vocal performance. And it's so seamless and brilliant. And when you watch it with that information, you can identify when it's happening. And yet it's such an organic performance. Um, it, it was really just, it was stunning to watch. So I highly recommend that you go watch that performance that he gives. It's excellent. Um, I do plan to listen to the whole show, but I plan to listen to it in the greater context that I've gleaned from different articles I've read. So those are all my caveats, but Ben Platt in that song is phenomenal. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, ha I had not listened to the Evan Hansen. I knew about it, but mm -hmm. I was so out of the musical theater loop for 2016. <laughs> Me too. I, and there were certain things that I was kind of looking forward to. Um, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which I have listened to. Um, and the thing about that particular show, which I find fascinating, is that I don't know if it's different if you've seen it, because I have listened to it, and I was kind of like, this is not my thing. Um, I will say that the Tony performance did not endear it to me. <laughs> I don't know how reflective that is of the actual not, show. I did not watch the Tonys at all, which is terrible. Like, I'm not as big of a theater kid as Kelly, because I wasn't actually, but I do enjoy musical theater, and I just totally skipped the Tonys this year, so. I don't know the name of the song they performed, um... It was fine. It was it was very energetic. It was a big, big, big cast number. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I listened to it a while ago, and I was just kind of like, mm, this is not my thing. But so many people whose taste in musical theater aligns with mine really love it. So, I don't, like I said, I don't know if I have to see it to like it, but I don't know. I'm not sure about that. We'll see. Um... I know Anastasia is on Broadway as well. I've heard that there are problems with that show, and I've also heard that no one cares. <laughs> I've heard the same thing, but I kind of want to see it anyway, just because I really love the movie Anastasia, like a lot. Um, also, so I, I, I want to see it, I want to watch Anastasia, and I kind of want to listen to the music, but I also kind of don't care as well, which is terrible, but... I like it. I am so, and I think this is such a contrast to last year's Tonys because every obviously Hamilton was the big one last year, but also the color purple was a huge thing for me. I had kind of um, a heart, like my heart was sort of given to the Deaf West production of Spring Awakening, which I really loved. Um, so I was like really invested in last year's Tonys and this year's. I just did not care. It's terrible, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't know if it's because last year was such a dumpster fire of, like, celebrities dying in the political things. But I was just like, eh, don't know any of these. Yeah, I just don't care. <laughs> um, I don't actually have any off-menu recommendations. If it's, not, if it's not writing and going to the gym and news, political stuff, then I don't really have anything at the moment. So... That's all for this week. Next week, we will actually be starting a series on archetypes, stereotypes, and tropes uh, as a sort of like summer of these sorts of things where we will be kind of dissecting different archetypal narratives for you guys. Um, so as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review and you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast and it makes me really happy. Yes. <laughs> 
If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November, tw- November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, feedback, or want to send in your query to be critiqued live on the podcast, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Jones called JJ. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a... I'm not a contracts manager anymore. <laughs> it's been a while. <gasps> wow. I am rusty. Okay, let's try that again.